Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. like to do something a little different tonight, and I will start by reading uh, a monologue that Andrew Delanides has written and graciously given me permission to read here. 
This is a monologue entitled David. It's David reflecting on 1 Samuel 16 and what we just read. I begin to hum the new song that's come to me as I lean on my staff, keeping watch over my father's flock. From where I stand, I can see the whole valley, fields full of barley cradled in the hills of Judah, and across the way, the village, house of bread, Beit Lachem, altogether a land flowing with milk and honey. Once in this very place, while I kept watch over the flock by night, you showed me a vision Or was it a dream of angels bursting the night sky open with shouts of joy blessing this land? Is that where I first heard this tune? I wonder now in the light of day, knowing the rush of recent events, were you showing me a vision of my future? You show steadfast love to your anointed. I have my eye on the brush watching for signs of movement. The sheep are oblivious to the danger. Once a lion came prowling down from the hills to prey on the weak among the flock. It had snatched a lamb almost before I noticed, but I bounded over and struck it with my staff. Stunned, it dropped the lamb and turned to face me. As it pounced, I grabbed its neck with my bare hands, and throwing it down, I pummeled it with strength not mine and yet my own, until it became limp. I picked up my staff and leaned on it, exulting over the carcass of the lion, heaving to catch my breath. Then I heard the bleating of the lamb cowering behind a rock. Terrified and bloody, it began to stumble back toward the flock. Who knows, it may be meant for the sacrifice, but not today, not in the jaws of this unclean beast. With one hand, I scooped it up and returned it to the fold. I see now that encounter with the lion was a sign of what's sure to come. I'll work it into the new song somehow. This I know, you delivered me from the mouth of the lion. But remembering grandfather's warning wisdom, I say aloud, Cursed may I be if ever I become the lion. Better to be the lamb. The sheep, hearing my voice, perk their heads and stare at me as as sheep do. Down below, Eliab, the eldest of my seven brothers, picks his way up the hillside toward me. Messengers from the king, Eliab says breathless. They call for you. The second strange visitation in as many weeks. Only days ago, the prophet had come in secret. The elders feared the old man, for they feared the king. He had declared your rejection of the king, and now the king, by all accounts, sat brooding on his throne as the enemies of your people prowled, waiting to pounce on them like that lurking lion. Rumor said that when the prophet turned to go, the king had grabbed his robe and torn it. So has your kingdom been torn from you and given to another, the old man replied. He said he had come to make a sacrifice. Now I see the double meaning. So he consecrated us. I saw the elders dread when the old man said that he had come to find a king among the sons of Jesse. That was when father, with a stern glance, sent me away to watch the flock. When I lingered to see the spectacle unfold, an even sterner gesture from father told me this was man's business, not for boys. Or maybe it was to spare me from the taint of treason. Then, as now, Eliab had come to summon me back. I am not the one, he said, looking down. Though at first the prophet thought I was, but God spoke to him. The Lord does not look at outward appearance, but sees the heart, he said. All seven of us were called, and none were chosen, but now he calls for you. And so I went down and found the prophet standing there. I knelt before the old man as my seven brothers watched, not daring to look into his eyes. And then I heard there from murmurs as I felt the cool oil from the old man's horn flowing down my head and face and neck, your Holy Spirit filling me. 
As a child, I remember father's laughter when he held me in his arms to say forehead to forehead that the eighth son is a special blessing from you. Just ask Father Abraham, his eyes gleamed. But who ever heard of an eighth son receiving such favor? True, Judah, the father of our tribe and prince among his brothers, was himself the fourth. And now by your enigmatic choosing, I have doubled his tale. Four soldiers flanked the village gate, a show of force meant to intimidate. Has the king gotten word of the prophet's visit? The king's messengers sit in grave silence in father's courtyard. Having washed their feet, he stands now ready to attend them. When I enter, they rise and I kneel. I am required of the king, they say. He is of late afflicted by an evil spirit. He has heard of my worth and my skill with the harp. He requires me to play for him that he may be soothed. Within the hour, father has a donkey ready to accompany me on my journey, laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat from the flock. And for good measure, he has convinced my three eldest brothers to offer their service to the king and to watch out for me. Somber we are as we make the journey to the house of the king. No one speaking what we are all thinking. Gibeah is not a place known for hospitality. If we are walking into a trap, bread and wine will not help us. Only your promise that you are a saving refuge for your anointed. So I sing to you the new song, but also for my brother's comfort as we walk, tightening it for this new occasion, testing new turns, new tunes, with skill not mine and yet my own, weaving in all the threads of memory and meditation, my fear and my longing and my trust, the scandalous sacrament by which you have laid hold of me, the rough departure of your spirit from the king and its rush upon me. Me? How can it be? You have searched me and known me in my inmost being, a lowly shepherd boy, the eighth son of a common man from a small village, and the thing that everyone knows but no one speaks, the taint of Moabite blood in our family. I remember grandfather's musings about the mysteries of your choosing. Were it not for the faithfulness of his mother, that very Moabitess, he would not breathe the breath of life. None of us would. And whatever purposes you have for my future would be striving after the wind. But you will not forsake the work of your hands or let your anointed see demise. She undid the sin of her father Lot by working the faith of our father Abraham and by so doing paved the way for the coming kingdom. I asked Eliab if he remembers her, our great-grandmother, but she died when he was young. Only wisps of memory remain. So let the song be sung, the story told for the faithful ones who have gone before, though they live only now in tales, tell our lives with their deeds, a crowd of witnesses, no revision, a cloud, a pillar of cloud and fire, guiding, sending, calling us on the slow sojourn to our dwelling place in you. Your steadfast love endures from generation to generation. The king is in a drunken rage when his stewards usher us into his house. He's just thrown a goblet at some poor servant whose nose is gushing blood. He growls when I kneel before him, his stewards reminding him why he sent for me. As I begin to play my fingers over the strings of my harp, I see the king calm, an unnatural calm as he reclines on his throne. He closes his eyes as I begin to sing the song, low and gentle. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It almost seems he sleeps as I sing of pastures and waters. But it is peace, peace he once had, now returned. 
His eyes open when my lullaby turns to darker things. I sing of foes and of death and of my anointing by the Lord. And for a moment he glares at me as if he's worked something out. But then he realizes my song speaks in the voice of the king. His calm returns, but only because he does not understand. He doesn't know. For now the Lord's anointed must remain hidden. In your timing, he will be revealed. And if I have learned anything... It will not be what anyone expects. With patience, I will wait for you. Surely your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. As Andrew suggests, the story of 1 Samuel 16 is a story of two strange visitations at Bethlehem. The first, the coming of the prophet Samuel to anoint David. The second, being the messengers of King Saul to take David to the king. And at the heart of the chapter, at the heart of these two visitations, is the movement of the Holy Spirit, rushing upon David even as he departs from Saul. We saw last time that the Lord rejected Saul as king because Saul does not fear God. Saul feared the people, and a king who fears the people will not, in the end, lead them to do what is right in God's eyes. Oh, he may do a few things right. And our author is a faithful author who points out the many things that Saul did right. But if your central failing is that you fear the people rather than God, then you will not lead well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we get a chance to see this same dynamic at work, but with a different result, because who does Samuel fear? Samuel is tempted to fear Saul. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Okay, Samuel, time to move on. Time to anoint a new king. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel's first thought is, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. There's the temptation. Will Samuel fear man rather than fearing God? For Samuel to go somewhere and offer sacrifices, this is a public thing. Samuel is the prophet. He's the one who has spoken the word of the Lord to Israel for a generation. And his regular route does not include Bethlehem. And besides, he's retired now. He hasn't been doing his old route. He's no longer judging Israel at the various cities. He's now retired in Ramah. And he leaves retirement and goes to Bethlehem. This is out of his ordinary way. Nobody, I mean, everybody's going to know. Wait, where's Samuel going? Word will spread. Samuel went to Bethlehem. Now, Notice that the Lord doesn't answer Samuel's fear. There is no promise. Don't worry, that won't happen. In other words, Samuel knows. If Saul hears of this, he'll probably kill me. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go. 
Who does Samuel fear? Samuel fears the Lord. Do you fear me, Samuel? Or do you fear Saul? The, it really is just kind of think about what happened to the last guy who feared man rather than God. God rejected Saul from being king because Saul feared the people rather than God. And Samuel was like, okay, you told me to do it. So whatever happens to me, let's do it. And notice also that the Lord's answer is simply, here's what you're you're supposed to do. Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You see, the Lord... The Lord has utter confidence in Samuel because as Psalm 99 puts it, Samuel also was among those who called upon God's name. He called upon the name of the Lord. And because of that, God says, go do what I've told you. This is also why the elders of Bethlehem come trembling. Wait a second. What's Samuel doing here? Okay. We know if Samuel's here, something's up, and it probably isn't something that the king is going to like. Do you come in peace? What is the purpose of your visit? We thought you had retired. And he says to them, Shalom. He says to them, Peace. I have come in peace. I have come to bring peace, to bring shalom to Bethlehem and to all Israel and to the ends of the earth. The shalom that Samuel brings is a peace that passes all understanding. Because the peace that passes all understanding is a peace that is a peace that in the midst of the most wretched circumstances in the midst of the thing that feels so far from peace, the Lord's peace is with his people. And so he calls the elders of Bethlehem to come to the sacrifice together with Jesse and his sons. So note, David is anointed in front of the elders of Bethlehem. You might think that the word might spread, but the news of this anointing does not seem to travel far. The elders of Bethlehem seem to be wise and discreet men, and it's a long time before anyone learns that Samuel has anointed David. It appears that they heard Samuel's shalom, peace, and they took it to heart. Samuel has come to bring peace, and the Prince of Peace will come through the anointing of David. But at first, David isn't there. Uh, the, seven, the seven older sons are there. Samuel sees Eliab and thinks, oh, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Saul had been head and shoulders taller than the rest of Israel, so Samuel may be excused for thinking that Eliab was God's choice. But now Samuel learns the full lesson of Saul. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Now, that word rejected is the same word that God had just used of Saul in the previous chapter. So, yes, he's referring to Eliab, but with the echo of Saul. Saul had been outwardly impressive, but 
outwardly impressive men do not necessarily make good kings. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God gave to Israel an outwardly impressive king in Saul, but Saul's heart was not right. And when tested in the heat of the moment, Saul did not fear God more than he feared man. Now the Lord gives to Israel a man after his own heart. This is what the king should look like. And yes, David is is just as bad a sinner as Saul. And as you go through the life of David, if you compare the the, the number of sins they commit and the sorts of, David's just as bad, if not worse than Saul in terms of sort of certain, in certain respects. What's the difference between them? When push comes to shove, Saul fears the people rather than God. When push comes to shove, David fears the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that David always gets things right. But it does mean that when David is faced with that moment of decision, he fears God. When Saul, he fears man. But as the seven sons of Jesse passed before Samuel, he, he says, neither has the Lord chosen these. And, and he's, we won't, uh, wait, I thought you had eight sons. Where, oh, the youngest, the smallest. He's keeping the sheep. Well, send for him and get him. We will not sit down until he comes here. We will not partake of the feast until the youngest, the smallest comes. It is interesting to note that just as Saul was hiding among the baggage and did not put himself forward, so also David must be sent for. God is taking the youngest son and making him his firstborn. The eighth son of Jesse will become the firstborn son of God. And while David may have been the youngest and the smallest, he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. He's a good-looking fellow, just not as impressive a specimen as his eldest brother. But the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. His work is complete. He returns once again to his retirement. It's worth reflecting on what Samuel says, what the Lord says to Samuel about how the Lord looks on the heart. Because so often when we're in the middle of a situation, we don't see clearly. And that's where, how, how do you know? How is Samuel supposed to know which son of, of Jesse to anoint? He'll look on the, on the outside. Samuel has no access to the heart. We also have no access to one another's hearts. So what do we do? We wait upon the Lord. We trust him rather than try to figure out the hearts of others. It's hard to do because we so easily and so naturally try to go there and figure out what they're really thinking. But we must beware of that. But the spirit of the Lord then rushes upon David from that day forward. And then verse 14 helps us understand what this means because the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. You see, the the spirit of the Lord could not be upon both of them at the same time. We're used to 
All God's people have the Holy Spirit, so why does it matter? Well, the Spirit of the Lord in this instance is being poured out upon the Lord's anointed, the king. We saw previously that Saul was a year old when he became king and he reigned for two years in Israel. And you're like, what? He was a year old when he became king? Yes, because remember, he had become a new man when the spirit was poured out on him. And so he was a year old when he became king and he reigned for two years. And then the spirit departed from him. And so he is no longer a new man. He's back to his old self. That's a scary thought. Also, think about Psalm 51, where David says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why does David say that? Oftentimes we think, oh, God could never do that. Well, God had done that to Saul. Because what David's talking about in Psalm 51, what Saul experienced in 1 Samuel, is not the, the gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to us in our salvation. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given in order to be king, the Lord's anointed, the one who is called to, be, to succeed where Israel had failed. That's something that Saul was given and then was removed from Saul. And now it is given to David, and David understands. Wow, in my sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, I really screwed that one up. Am I, is God going to do to me what he did to Saul? Please, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David repents and returns to the Lord and fears the Lord in that repentance. And... And this, so the, the anointing of David signals the transference of the spirit from Saul to David. The Lord is no longer with Saul. And his, in a sense, Saul continues as a placeholder king for many years to come. But his spirit anointed reign is officially over. And verses 14 to 23 illustrate what happens when the Spirit departs. And we'll actually see more of this in the coming chapters as well. When the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, an evil spirit is sent to torment him. Now, this evil spirit is said to be from the Lord, from Yahweh. So this is where this, the word translated evil can also mean harmful. So different translations say evil spirit, harmful spirit. Uh, but it's correct to say that this is a harmful spirit, evil spirit from God. And part of what our text is showing us is that God rules all things. And so when God says to this harmful spirit, go torment Saul, the spirits obey. It's just, it's worth remembering. If God commands the devil to do something, the devil can't actually say no. If God says, you're going to do this now. It will happen. I mean, remember, he's God. <laughs> Nobody else is. Who can resist his will? So when this harmful spirit comes from God, God is, has sent this spirit to torment Saul. And now, what's going on here? Now, it's, it's evident to everyone that something has changed here. Saul is no longer filled with the Holy Spirit, Saul has a very different spirit. And so his servants say to him, behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. And so they, they, they say, command us 
And we'll find a man who's skillful in playing the lyre so that when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Notice again how Saul is portrayed. It's not that Saul is a wise king who, who di- correctly diagnoses his problem. It's his servants who are seeing the issue and have to fix it for him. And their diagnosis is that this is a harmful spirit from God. And so Saul says, okay, uh, Find me such a man. And one of his young men answers, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. And and then he adds, a man of valor, a man of war, which might sound odd since if if all of this is in chronological order, then David doesn't have any battle experience yet. There are also some who think that this may have actually happened after the whole David and Goliath incident, which is possible. But... Whichever way it goes, he, he's describing David as skillful, a skillful musician, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. I mean, part of it is he's trying to persuade an irrational king to do something for his own benefit. So he may be, in a sense, overstating David's present qualifications, though they will eventually be very true of David. And in the eyes of our author, this young man is a prophet who sees very clearly what David is, skillful in playing, a a musician who plays. This is one of the one of the things you start to see in the way that our the way that the book of Samuel will talk about music is music is powerful. Music is is able to uh, tame the spirits, which Sounds strange, right? Music? Well, music can tame the savage beast. And that's what music is doing in the life of Saul. That music, and, but it's not just music by anyone. It's particularly music played by the Lord's anointed. And this is where you think about these qualifications that, the, uh, that are given of David. And you start to see this is the qualities that one should look for in a king, skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. And so Saul says, send the messengers, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And so for a second time, messengers come to Bethlehem that will alter the fate of David. One can only wonder what Jesse was thinking when they arrived. Has Saul heard what Samuel has done? How can I protect my son? And we come back to the question of what fear is governing your heart? Samuel had come to Bethlehem in peace with the shalom of the Lord. And that peace that passes understanding now rules in the hearts of Jesse and David and the elders of Bethlehem. Many have wondered, sort of, and we're not really told anything about what happened here. Did Jesse fear that Saul was trying to kill David? Did he try to find some way out? Did Jesse offer excuses or, oh, I've got a different son. He's even better with the, with the, with the lyre, with the harp. It doesn't matter. Whatever human frailty may have also happened, the important thing, is that the peace that passes understanding ruled in the hearts of Jesse and David. Did they fear Saul? Eh, maybe a little bit. 
but not as much as they feared the Lord. They feared God. And they recognized, as Andrew put it so beautifully in his, his monologue, they recognized that the Lord will protect his anointed. And so what did they have to fear? And so Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. Bread and wine and a young goat, bring a present to the king. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, in the next chapter, we'll be somewhat perplexed that Saul doesn't appear to know David, but there may have been some time in between these events, or it may just be that in his arrogance and perplexity, Saul really didn't pay attention to who all these people really were. Sure, David's my armor-bearer musician, but I don't really care about anything else about him. But the point that we conclude with is that when David, the Lord's anointed, played upon the harp, it brought refreshment to Saul. The hands of a king are the hands of a healer. The king is one who brings peace to his people. And so while Saul is sitting on the throne, David is exercising kingly authority over Saul and yet does so humbly, quietly, faithfully as Saul's servant. A thousand years before Jesus said it, David lived it. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And David will live for many years to come under the shadow of Saul, under the threat of Saul, and will continue to humbly and faithfully walk, fearing the Lord because he knows that the peace, the shalom that Samuel had brought will remain on him. The anointing that is upon him, the Holy Spirit who is with him, will continue to protect and guide and care for David. And you see, this is where that gift of the Holy Spirit that David had is connected to the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have. Indeed, it is the same gift. I said earlier that it was unique. It was only for the Lord's anointed. Indeed, it is. But what happened when our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness? That Spirit that was upon him, the anointing of the King that was upon our Lord Jesus, he poured out on you. It's not a different anointing of the Spirit. It's the same anointing that is upon Jesus that has been given to you so that that spirit might be with you forever. The spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, not just like we saw this morning, not just some vague numinous force, but the person of the Holy Spirit is with you 
who are called by the name of Jesus, you who have had the name of Jesus placed upon you in your baptism, that same spirit is with you to, to lead and guide and guard you to speak. I mean, this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives is that, is that in those moments when, when you're sort of not sure what to do, you know those occasionally, you have, you have lots of other thoughts that are perhaps from other spirits. But those, those thoughts of faith, those thoughts of hope, those thoughts of love that you have in those moments that seem to come out of the blue, well, that's called the, what the Holy Spirit is doing. Because the Holy Spirit who is in you is seeding the thoughts of our Lord Jesus Christ in you so that you might think his thoughts after him, so that you might practice building on those thoughts, growing those thoughts, becoming more and more the one that has been changed by our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might walk humbly and faithfully before our God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us because we are weak and frail and we too often forget what you have promised and what you have said. Have mercy on us, O Lord. And by the grace of your Holy Spirit, keep working in us that which is pleasing in your sight, that we might more and more be conformed to the likeness of Jesus, that we might more and more grow, that your Spirit might be at work in us, showing us your ways, teaching us your thoughts, that as we meditate on your word, we might more and more live as those who live by the grace of your Spirit. Father, we, th we ask that you would have mercy on us in each situation you put us in this week. Help us in our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our communities, that we might show forth your love, that we might live by the power of your spirit, that we might live in the grace of your son, that we might walk in you, our heavenly father. And Help, Lord, those who are afflicted and bowed down. Sustain and comfort those who are tried and tested. And draw near to each of your children that we might know you, love you, and walk humbly before you all our days. For Jesus' sake, amen.